0: Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Today we're talking about the thyroid in pregnancy and joining me on the podcast is Dr. Elizabeth Pierce, professor of medicine at Boston University Medical Center. She is also president of the American Thyroid Association. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Hi, happy to be here.
0: So what does the thyroid do, and how is its function impacted during pregnancy?
1: So I typically tell my patients that the thyroid is a butterfly-shaped gland in the front of the neck, and it makes a signal or hormone that essentially regulates how the body uses energy, so it really affects every body's system. In pregnancy, the thyroid has to work harder than outside the pregnancy setting. Pregnancy is basically a stress test for the thyroid. And normally women starting in pretty early pregnancy will start to increase their thyroid hormone production uh, by as much as about 50% typically.
0: What are some ways that maybe it doesn't go the way that we hope?
1: So women with maybe marginal thyroid function to begin with or who are actually hypothyroid, don't have adequate thyroid function to begin with, may not be able to meet these increased demands for pregnancy. Women, and additionally, in parts of the world that don't have enough iodine in the diet, because iodine is needed as a substrate for building thyroid hormone, they may not be able to meet these increased demands for pregnancy. And this actually matters because adequate maternal thyroid hormone is really critical for the fetus's development.
0: Can we just talk briefly about the iodine nutrition and just in general, where can we find iodine in our diet?
1: So iodine in much of the world is found primarily in iodized salt. The iodine is there as a public health measure to prevent iodine deficiency disorders. In the United States, uh, we have never mandated salt iodization. So unlike Mm. much of the rest of the planet, we are not really relying on that. Or at least not exclusively on that. And in fact, it turns out that the most important source of iodine in the diet in the US right now is probably dairy foods. So, for people who are vegan or lactose intolerant or who don't have dairy in their diets for other reasons, they are at risk for having inadequate iodine and therefore maybe not for having completely normal thyroid function. And this matters most in pregnancy, where even fairly mild levels of iodine deficiency in pregnant women are associated with lower child IQ.
0: So besides the lower IQ with the iodine insufficiency, are there other ways that a thyroid condition during pregnancy could affect the developing fetus?
1: So the fetus really relies very heavily on maternal thyroid hormone, especially in the first half of pregnancy. So by about week 10 or 12 of pregnancy, the fetus has a thyroid gland. And by about week 16 or 20, the fetus can actually start making its own thyroid hormone. But before that, the fetus is really reliant on maternal thyroid hormone that can cross the placenta, and it's particularly critical for the fetal brain development so that we know that low levels of maternal thyroid hormone uh, can be associated with lower child IQ, whether those low levels of maternal thyroid hormone are due to iodine deficiency or to Hashimoto's thyroiditis or to other reasons, and that's particularly critical probably in the first trimester.
0: What are some symptoms of a thyroid disorder during pregnancy?
1: So this can get a little bit tricky because there are a lot of symptoms of pregnancy that overlap with symptoms of thyroid dysfunction. Ah. Uh, We've talked so far mostly about hypothyroidism, but of course hyperthyroidism, too much thyroid hormone can also occur during pregnancy. And some of the common symptoms of just being a woman in the first trimester, like extreme fatigue, can be common to both kinds of thyroid dysfunction. Uh, Having a rapid heart rate, palpitations, shortness of breath. Uh, These can all happen with hyperthyroidism, but also with normal pregnancy. So it can be a little bit tricky sometimes to dissect what's regular pregnancy and, and what's something else on top of that.
0: That does sound tricky. So how does the clinician then make a diagnosis that this is in fact a thyroid condition and not something that's normal?
1: So we need to rely pretty heavily on lab tests, and luckily we have pretty robust lab tests. The screening test for thyroid dysfunction, uh, with the starting point is always a TSH or thyroid stimulating hormone, because that's the most sensitive to, s- to subtle shifts in thyroid status.
0: Because thyroid disease can have such a adverse effect on both the mom and on the developing fetus, should every pregnant woman be screened for a thyroid disorder?
1: So, this is probably the most controversial question in my world. If we were to screen every pregnant woman for thyroid dysfunction, the vast majority of the time, what we would find is very mild hypothyroidism, subclinical hypothyroidism. And we're really not sure, in light of current evidence, whether treating that mild hypothyroidism actually improves outcomes either for the pregnancy and the mother or for the fetus. And there are two large randomized clinical trials in the literature at this point that have treated women with mild hypothyroidism relatively early in pregnancy, sort of in the second trimester, and did not see improvements in child IQ, which is, I think, the public health outcome a lot of us care about the most, or in obstetric outcomes. However, both of those trials have some flaws. Um, Uh. Primarily, they probably started too late if the first trimester really is the important time for that fetal brain development. And therefore, we're sort of left with imperfect science, and we don't really know the answer as to whether finding a lot of subclinical hypothyroidism is actually going to improve outcomes for anyone. And certainly screening um, and labeling women as abnormal in pregnancy can generate a whole lot of anxiety. So we would prefer not to do that if we don't know we're doing the right thing. Right now, because there's so much uncertainty about what the right course of action is there, guidelines around the planet are really all different. And whatever the clinicians approach, it matches somebody's guideline because there's really (laughs) no right or wrong answer right now. So the official position of The American Thyroid Association is that there just is not enough evidence to recommend for or against universal screening of all pregnant women for thyroid dysfunction with a really big caveat, which is that we truly don't want to miss the women with the more severe forms of hypothyroidism where we know we can benefit them with treatment. And so we want to make sure that women with risk factors for hypothyroidism probably should have that thyroid blood test as soon as they know they're pregnant. And that would include women with a strong family history of thyroid disorders, with a history, personal or a family history of autoimmunity, uh, women with a history of recurrent miscarriage, because that can be associated with thyroid dysfunction, and a list of about 16 other things. Oh, my
0: goodness. So you mentioned the guidelines, and I want to talk about that just a little bit. So the Endocrine Society last updated their clinical practice guideline on management of thyroid dysfunction during pregnancy and postpartum in 2012. I know the American Thyroid Association updated theirs in 2017. So between those years, how has treatment changed? And then even between 2017 and now, you know, what are we seeing as far as how this is advancing?
1: So this is a literature that has been just growing exponentially. So a huge amount more data that we had to review in 2017 compared to several years before that when the prior uh, iteration of guidelines were published. One of the areas that really changed uh, was in examining what normal thyroid function looks like in pregnancy and how to interpret thyroid function tests in pregnancy, that we know in the first trimester that the TSH, that normal screening test for thyroid dysfunction, probably does not have the same normal reference ranges it does outside the pregnancy setting, but there have been some disagreement about exactly what that reference rate should look like. In 2011, the American Thyroid Association guideline and 2012, the Endocrine Society guideline, both recommended quite a low upper limit for TSH. And in retrospect, that was probably a mistake based on much of the data that has really been published since that time I think we recognize that the TSH upper limit is a little bit higher than we had thought and that we probably had been over-diagnosing women with subclinical hypothyroidism mm. for a number of years, and that probably was not appropriate. Another big area that has changed since prior guidelines were written is that we used to think um, that of the two antithyroid drugs that are used to treat women with Graves' hyperthyroidism in pregnancy, we thought... PTU or propithiouracil was safe in the first trimester. And we have known since the 1970s that methimazole, the other antithyroid drug, uh, is associated with birth defects. What happened between 2012 and 2017 is a publication from Denmark in 2013 that demonstrated that actually both antithyroid drugs are associated with birth defects. Mm. So in the first 10 weeks of pregnancy when the fetal organs are forming, probably neither of them is completely safe. But we also know that uncontrolled Graves' disease is associated with pregnancy loss and birth defects, so we can't not treat in that setting either. And so this has led to um, a situation where we're not, again, quite sure what to do, but we are having sort of more nuanced conversations with women who are planning pregnancy who have Graves' disease about potentially doing sort of more drastic treatment, getting rid of the thyroid either via thyroidectomy. Uh, or with radioactive iodine therapy prior to pregnancy, so that there'd be no need for them to be on antithyroid drugs during that period of fetal development in early pregnancy. Uh, And then women who prefer not to do that, who do not want to destroy the thyroid gland, trying to be very cautious about the using the lowest possible dose of these drugs, always throughout pregnancy, and making sure that women understand sort of associated risks.
0: So I want to talk a little bit also about the postpartum phase. And so what do the clinician and the patient need to consider during postpartum?
1: About 10% of women in the first six months after pregnancy will develop something called postpartum thyroiditis. This is probably underdiagnosed because, as is the case in pregnancy, some of the symptoms of having postpartum thyroiditis overlap a whole lot with symptoms of having a newborn and being a new mother. So, for example, weight loss, anxiety, sleeplessness can all be signs of too much thyroid hormone, which can occur in postpartum thyroiditis, but they're also what a lot of women experience after giving birth. So it can be a little bit hard to tease out. I think it's probably a little bit underdiagnosed. What happens in postpartum thyroiditis is that the immune system attacks the thyroid and causes it to become transiently swollen and leaky and stored thyroid hormone in the gland essentially can leak out into the bloodstream and cause thyroid hormone levels to be too high. This usually lasts for just a few weeks. Often symptoms are fairly mild. And then following that, the thyroid sort of runs out of preformed hormone to leak out, but the thyroid may not be healed up and up yet to actually make thyroid hormone again. So there can then be a period after, after several weeks of too much hormone, there can be a period of too little hormone before everything heals. 80% of the time, uh, the thyroid will recover and thyroid function will go back to normal within a few months. But for women who have symptoms, we would like to make the diagnosis and treat them to make them more comfortable. Uh, in the phase where there's too much thyroid hormone, the treatment's typically beta blocker medications just to help with things like tremor and uh, rapid heart rate. And if the thyroid hormone levels get low enough to be symptomatic, uh, we can replace thyroid hormone for as long as a woman needs it.
0: I was reading some things about concerns during breastfeeding as well. Is that another iodine kind of thing, or is that something else? Yes, yeah, was...
1: so women who are breastfeeding, like women who are pregnant, need more iodine in the diet than the rest of us. For women who are pregnant, they need more iodine, partially just for making more thyroid hormone, um, and they're transferring some of it to the fetus, so the fetus can start making thyroid hormone. In women who are breastfeeding, iodine is directly secreted into breast milk, where it's critically important as that nutritional source of iodine for the newborn. So... Women of reproductive age in this country tend to be the group that is least likely to be getting adequate iodine in the diet. I don't really know why, but it's unfortunate because they're the group that need it most. So the recommendation from the Endocrine Society and from a number of other associations, including the American Thyroid Association and the American Academy of Pediatrics, is that women in the U.S. who are planning pregnancy, who are pregnant, or who are breastfeeding should take a daily supplement that contains 150 micrograms of iodine, And that's not quite as easy as it maybe should be because not all the multivitamin preparations sold for pregnancy in this country contain iodine. You have Hmm. to look at labels.
0: Uh, Let's talk a little bit about thyroid function test interpretation and and how we navigate that.
1: So the first thing to remember is that reference ranges for non-pregnant adults do not apply in pregnant women for really any of the thyroid function tests. So for serum TSH, Levels typically are lower in the first trimester of pregnancy than they are outside pregnancy or in the later part of pregnancy. And although there has been controversy over time about how much lower they should be, uh, the current recommendation is based on both information about how high the TSH has to be before you start seeing adverse effects on pregnancy, and also based on a huge amount of literature now looking at normal thyroid function values. Uh, in populations from around the globe. So what's being recommended now is that you take your non-pregnancy upper limit for TSH, and in the first trimester, you should reduce that by 0.5, which for most labs is going to give you an upper limit for TSH of 4. Now, peripheral thyroid hormones are also challenging to interpret in pregnancy. Both total T4 and total T3 are going to increase substantially as thyroxin-binding globulin increases So again, non-pregnancy reference ranges don't apply for those values. And as a rule of thumb, you can use what we know about sort of the linear changes in thyroxin binding globulin levels in early pregnancy to adjust your non-pregnant upper limit for normal um, for both total T3 and total T4. Um, We know TBG increases starting at about seven weeks gestation and then plateaus at 16 weeks. So if you take your non-pregnancy upper limit um, of normal for total T4 or total T3, Add 5% per week until you get to week 16, when things stabilize. That can give you sort of an approximate reference range for those labs. And then finally, free T4, which is really kind of the mainstay of our assessment of peripheral thyroid hormone, tends to be an assay that just doesn't function very well in pregnancy, that having very high levels of thyroxin binding globulin around, it tends to make the assay perform poorly, um, and so that we can't necessarily trust those results. We do not have a great solution for that right now. Uh, One avenue is to use an older version of that test, which is the free T4 index, rather than the actual free T4 measurement. This has been shown to be probably more accurate in pregnancy uh, than the typical free T4 assays, but because it's an old test, a lot of labs have phased it out. So another possibility is using the total T4 levels with the sort of caveat that I told you that you need to adjust the, the ranges appropriately as a surrogate for free T4 And if your lab has phased that out as well, because some have, it's just using whatever assay you have available, but being aware that the free T4 measurements in pregnancy may not be completely accurate. And if there's a discrepancy with TSH, the TSH is probably the more robust assay to follow.
0: My last question might be for the patient who is listening, probably wondering if what they have might be a symptom of a thyroid (laughs) condition or just is normal for what it is. Um, But what do they need to think about as they plan their pregnancy? And Especially, what if they've had a thyroid disorder in the past?
1: So really important for women with hypothyroidism, underactive thyroid, even if they're really optimally treated prior to becoming pregnant, they need to know that because their thyroids aren't functioning and can't sort of appropriately increase thyroid hormone production for pregnancy, we as a providers have to do that for them. So women who are on thyroid hormone replacement prior to pregnancy need to be aware that as soon as they become pregnant, and really as soon as they become pregnant, I usually tell women in my practice that it's okay to let the baby's father know first, but I want the second phone call, (laughs) that they should be contacting their healthcare providers to arrange for thyroid function testing, and that they should be increasing the thyroid hormone dose as soon as they know they're pregnant by about 25 to 30%. The easiest way to do that is typically if you normally take one tablet a day of thyroid hormone to increase by two tablets a week. And then there needs to be closer monitoring of the thyroid hormone levels for the first half of pregnancy when things are still changing.
0: I just want to let you know that I appreciate you taking the time, and and thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening to the Endocrine News Podcast. If you'd like to hear more of these, check us out on endocrine.org slash podcast or Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying these, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email at podcast at Thanks again. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.